We cover sciencey things like fascia, anatomy, the nervous system, and other body-based science. We also have a pretty high tolerance for the woo factor, which, let's face it, it is also energy and should not be discarded as if it has no value. We are nature-loving, yoga and meditation-teaching podcasters that could, aiming to make the world just a little better than we found it. Our motto is, leave no trash trace, we're only visiting, but leave your heart print with every step. Hey, Teresa. Hi, Sherry. How's it going? It's going good. I am really excited. I just got back from a walk with Siva and it is cool and brisk and sunny and ah, I guess being out in the autumn air has me connecting with the wise woman inside. Well, that's and that's where we are. I, you know, I wanted to start this episode by, you know, one of my favorite podcasts, my favorite murder. They have something called a correction corner. And I'm not going to call it that because it's not really a correction corner, but an opportunity to kind of you know, in real time, talk about things that, you know, came up from the last episode that may or may not have revealed itself in the way that maybe it was intended. And I just wanted to start by saying that, you know, everything is a mirror. And we talk about that, that the people and the experiences, everything that's outside of us is an opportunity to reflect back not only our, our positive qualities, but those things that we should work with and work on. And for me, and it's been a long journey, it's this, the deep listening. And when I was listening back to last week's episode, and that would be episode 44, I loved the conversation. But I noticed at the end that when you mentioned, you know, in your class, asking people to put their hands where they feel stress. I don't think you even mentioned the word body in that query. But in the answer, you said a lot of people place their hands on their body, you know, in certain places. And then you'd said, but very rarely, if ever, on their head where their thoughts are. And I got stuck on this thing about body. Like if he just didn't use the word body when you asked, maybe someone would have. And it just became this false narrative in my head from something that you didn't even say. So I just wanted to, A, apologize if I came off at all as being arrogant, which is something that sometimes lives in my blind spots. Or, you know, if that, and I know it probably didn't for you, and things are often, you know, if we're looking at blind spots, often we talk about cars and the the rear view mirror there are things in our blind spots and on the passenger side it says objects in mirror are you know are larger than they appear or closer than they appear and so often when we're looking at our own shit it's bigger than we think but i also think that in this world where we're asking others to be accountable for things and to do practices to grow that this is my chance to to put into practice that accountability and to say hey you know the softer side of communication <laughs> Well, as you said, I think that you paid more attention to it than I did. Mm -hmm. For me, it was just part of a conversation. But I also noticed that when I have a blind spot, I pay attention to it because I'm aware of it much more so than others. Like sometimes I get feeling kind of defensive and <laughs> and maybe even just because I'm interpreting something someone said or a way that they acted or a look that came back at me and I'm going to I'm going to fill in the after the because and become super defensive for something that never really happened. So the good good part of this story is 
I didn't feel defensive at all. So I think I kind of missed, missed it, but appreciate you reflecting back. Well, sometimes I'm like, oh man, I just sound like such an asshole. And I, you know, it's never my intention, but it's, you know, something to work on. And it brings up this, one of my favorite quotes. I don't know who said it, who originated it, but don't believe everything you think. And that includes who we think we are. <laughs> who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? I don't know who I think I am, but it's often, you know, somewhere in the the pantheon of that. I don't know. Yeah. Oof. I just feel really lucky that we get to do this work so that when we see these things that are flaws, like you have so beautifully talked about the golden repair, that we get to fill those cracks in by by paying attention, showing up and and growing. I think, you know... Ever since I personally began a practice of mindfulness, of trying to be present, listening, and the practice of being okay with not being perfect, because, you know, for a while there, I, I probably thought I was perfect, but somebody's people have told me I'm not. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I guess I better believe that I'm not, and I have a few gold cracks that have been repaired over time. And hopefully they are artistic in their orientations throughout my body, that they are just outward signs of a diamond in the rough, somebody who's just working on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Perfection was never my shadow, but I just don't want to do harm to others, you know, and I feel like, you know, words can be harmful. Energy can be, you know, misinterpreted, like you were saying, you know, not feeling seen or heard sometimes. And I get that too. Like I've been people's blind spots. Often it's weird because I, I feel like I'm loud. I have a big presence, whether you like me or not, that's up to you, but I have a big presence. And as I've been told, but I, people forget about me all the time. They forget when I was little to set a seat at the table, if I, we were going out somewhere and, you know, I never do things in order to be thanked, but if you're going to thank everyone and I'm not on that list and I've done something in that same category, it hurts my feelings. And I'm, I been there more often than I would like to say. And so just it, if it's at all an opportunity for people who are listening to pay attention, to try to see what's in your blind spot. And if it's a person, you know, there are things we can do. We can reach out. We can, we can do better. And we can acknowledge those who may be there. And sometimes, you know, that acknowledgement is so small. It's just a hello or, you know, hey, I gave you a seat at the table. <laughs> right. Hey, I remember this time. <laughs> like I, always I always forget to tag my husband in posts that I make about the family. And he was like, you know, I appreciate it if you would, if you would tag me on that. And I just now when I do it, I'm like, I remember to do that. But that was in my blind spot. So I got really curious about this, this idea of the blind spot. And, you know, when I was a waitress, I always forgot the water always to bring we had to bus tables we had to do it all i always forgot the water and today i still i forget my water bottle my dog sweetie who's this little rescue cab i put her outside sometimes for hours i forget she's out there she doesn't make any sound she i love her so much but she's in my blind spot i i forget that you know that she's there so i was looking on i just put in google blind spot see what was coming up and because we are science and stories i thought it would be interesting to kind of plug in the webmd definition of blind spot and they say quote when light lands on your retina it sends electrical bursts through your optic nerve to your brain your brain turns sig that signal into a picture the spot where the optic nerve connects to your retina has no light sensitive cells so you can't see anything there that's your blind spot 
And I thought that was really interesting, bringing in light sensitivity as, you know, that piece. I'm not a scientist. I can only kind of philosophize off of this and, and you know, offer anecdotes that feel appropriate to that. But, you know, we were talking earlier, are blind spots and shadows connected? Well, maybe they are, since this light sensitivity is a piece of that medical definition. Yeah, and in in a way of finding some balance in the conversation from blind spot to expansive views. When I was in Kripalu, we practiced something called owl eyes. And it was a really interesting practice. We went to a sit spot and we sat there for 20 minutes. And what they wanted us to practice was owl eyes. And the way that it was introduced was if you take your arms and you bring them out to the side of your body, so you bring them out as if you're coming into that big hug, right? Your arms are spread wide and you wiggle your fingers out to the side and you bring them in until you can see your fingers wiggling. That's your peripheral vision. That's how much you actually are taking in with your eyes. And if you brought them above your head, like one hand above your head and one hand down by your belly somewhere, and go through the same exercise of wiggling your fingers, that is the sphere of your, of your peripheral vision. And the, the offering was just sit, but rather than staring straight ahead, as we often do, allow yourself to rest in your owl eye view. And it just opened up this sphere of awareness to things that we might not, we notice them because they're in our peripheral vision. And sometimes something out of the side will catch your eye and you'll just like turn to see it. But just in everyday mindful movement and, you know, going through your day mindfulness to develop the practice of expanding our vision as well was really quite interesting. That's really cool. And I love that you use the word awareness. In my mindfulness meditation training, we are maybe not so much in the training, but in practices over time through mindfulness meditation, I've often heard the instruction, you know, include your peripheral awareness, that the awareness was the beginning of that expansion rather than focused attention, which is more less owl view than hawk eye. You know, I don't know much about the hawk, but I've I've heard that term before, the hawk eye, which it, it feels to me very specific, precise, and focused. But that that balance between, you know, being in the microcosm and the macrocosm, that focused attention and that expansive peripheral awareness seems to be, you know, part of this practice. This yeah, getting there. Yeah, and I don't know if I'm remembering this qu correctly, so I'm telling this part of the story based on a memory. <laughs> so if I'm wrong, my apologies. But one of the things that came up in that conversation was beings that have their eyes in front are not hunted. And those that have their eyes on the side have to have a more expansive view of awareness because they are prey to others, like naturally that they are prey as part of their life, that they are hunted by some other being regularly. They're the smaller or whatever it is. And I started looking at animals just to notice where are their eyes? I found it fascinating. 
That so. is really interesting because it brings up, and I'm, I'm sorry I'm looking down, but I have all these notes in front of me, <laughs> this idea of intuition and instinct. And we, we touched on it a little bit last week when we were talking about the change of seasons and the things that we deliberately prepare for that we are consciously doing and the things that kind of happen, you know, as they happen. This idea of instinct, this natural impulse to do something, and this intuition of this deeper knowing that that's the place to go, that it feels like this conversation could include so many of these these different ideas that mean kind of the same thing. Expansiveness. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. I think what I'm hearing is that you're talking about like this perspective shift to be able to look at intuition and awareness to intuitive thought and maybe a little bit of, you know, people used to tell me I have ESP. I didn't say I had ESP. <laughs> I said, you know what? I'm just like, I'm the fifth child in a family of eight. I pay attention. I'm used to being an observer. So I don't have ESP. I just observe. It's, my, it's one of my archetypes is observer. Mm -hmm. And because I'm an observer, then maybe sometimes I just know things. But the conversation would always lead back to, well, you have this really strong intuition or you're intuitive. And I don't know what the real story is, but maybe I do have ESP. Sometimes I just know things. And I wonder, is it really that I know things or that I've, I've developed an awareness of how I feel in different situations, and I let my intuition lead me. And that's been, that's been a journey to let my intuition lead me. The most common, I mean, the most current, not common, the most current example, we talked about that in two episodes ago. You asked me the question when I got back from my training for Forest Community, why I picked that over, over the Fascial Research Congress. And I said, I listened to my heart. The forest was calling me. And I think that's tapping into that intuition to be able to come to a place in our life where we recognize that we have this little voice inside that talks to us and to give it our awareness to say, I hear you <laughs> to ourselves. I hear what you're saying and I respect you. It feels like a different language sometimes, you know, that to be able to interpret that feeling, that gut feeling, to be able to then, once interpreted, choose to follow it. Because I think as our human brains will often rationalize things in and out of favor according to our will. And I've said that before. I feel that, that I've noticed that in my own self, that if my gut tells me one thing, but I instinctively or intellectually want to do something else, I will figure out a way to rationalize it out and the other in. And what you said was really interesting because I think that this idea we've heard, everyone has intuitive power. Everyone has that skill, that ability to do that. Not everyone accesses it, but we've talked about this too, that everything is on a spectrum. You know, I have some very, very good friends who are clairaudient, they're clairvoyant, they're mediums. You know, there is no... There's no question in my mind the way that they have predicted future outcomes as specifically as they had, that they saw things, they heard things, there were actual messages that were being downloaded to them. And I think that that is a gift 
that can probably be cultivated. I'm always saying, how can I open my third eye a little bit more? It's, you know, I got to, you know, I'm always tapping it. And I actually create, there's a little bump there that came out over time. And I think it's the universe saying, try to keep that open. And my friends who are psychic would say, it's wide fucking open. Like just, you know, you got to pay attention. So, you know, there's a piece there. But then there's also the piece that you talked about, which I think is really important. And that's the observation piece. Because when, and we've talked about patterns a lot, when we are in a pattern and we are, that pattern is observed, it becomes predictable. You know, if you're in a pattern of leaving your house every day at 8 a.m., your alarm goes off, you get up, you get out. You know, if someone is witnessing your day and it is ritualistic to the point of predictability, then, you know, you can observe things and, and, and predict outcomes that may not have been there yesterday, but seem, you know, predictive in that way. And so I think that once we, if you have a disorder, for example, like a narcissist, if you're someone who is an expert in human behavior and you mm -hmm. have a classic narcissist in front of you, you can predict outcomes in the way of behavior. So like, I'm going to ply this person with all sorts of, you know, compliments and, you know, feed into that narcissism. You're going to get what you want from that person. If you withhold that and go the opposite way, you may get a different outcome, but it, that's also predictable. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've talked about patterns many, many times in our conversations and how they show up in the world, but how they show up personally, both for us and others. One of the things I do as a body worker is observe patterns, patterns of the way people move, because it helps me to understand if they have discomfort in their body, what some of those contributors might be. Patterns of thought, because sometimes we don't process our thoughts and emotions. And again, the stories the body holds and the stories the body tells. We can place them in specific areas. And that goes back to where do you hold your stress as a question. And, you know, I really got interested in our research between intuition and instinct mm -hmm. and those two different words and how we play with them together. You know, what is it that's really giving us an awareness? Is it our intuition or is it this natural instinct that all, and I'm going to say all animals, even though we're human animals, that there's an instinct that we have cultivated throughout our existence and also parts of that instinct that we don't really access so much anymore. And I'll give you an example. There are occasionally some people that I meet that I just don't feel comfortable around. I don't know why. Maybe others feel the same way, but I'll meet somebody and be like, oh yeah, I don't, I don't feel like I'm comfortable here. I don't want to be alone. And there's this one one man that I, I had met at, at one time, and he made me feel really, really, really uncomfortable. And, and it's not that he was male. It was just this person happens to yeah. be. So, and I said to my husband, I said, you know, if you see me, we were at an event. I said, if you see me kind of in conversation with this person, please come over because I'm not starting that conversation. I don't feel comfortable there. And interestingly enough, years later, just a few years later, this man got arrested for because he was a voyeur and he was spying on people with cameras in 
rental units that he had. He had rental units with cameras all over and, and recorded, recorded footage of what went on in these apartments. And when, when we heard about it, I was like, huh? So was that an intuition? Was that instinct? Like what was the energy? And that's what it is. I mean, back to my, back to whether we have woo woo factor or not. Is it just an energetic field that we can walk into and feel? Is it intuition? Is it instinct? I'm not really sure. And our bodies, I think, know. And again, it comes to Manamaya Kosha, our minds. I have this article here about, it's called Instinct and Intuition, Two Ends of the Spectrum. And I'm just going to read a little bit of it. It's published in what's called Boot Camp by Aditya Kolhatkar. And it's a quote. We all have used the words intuition, instinct, and gut feeling quite interchangeably, having taken a moment to pause and reflect on what they really meant. I realized the more I thought about it, the more confused I became. At this stage, I decided to dive deeper, and hopefully what you read ahead will offer some clarity. So let's start with instinct. Instinct comes from the Latin word instinctus, which means instigation, inspiration, or impulse. And we're going to get to some inspiration in this conversation also. Instinct is innate, inherited, and hardwired into our brain's circuitry as a result of millions of years of evolution. So here's a little science for you. I didn't know that. If a lot, well, I guess this is part of the, the, the sympathetic nervous system or and, well, parasympathetic also. Because she says, if a lion roars and I'm unaware of it standing behind me, I jump, turn, and most likely run for the hills. <laughs> this action is more primal than intuitive or analytical, though most likely there are shades of gray. For example, David had an instinct. He was being followed, so he hurried to his car. That sort of goes back to that feeling, that uneasy feeling. From a biological point of view, instinct is an innate behavior. It encompasses all of your internal needs and behaviors that allow you to survive in your surroundings. Instincts like self-preservation, protection, sociability, reproduction, cooperation, and curiosity are basic traits that define humans as well as other animals. So that kind of, that has the feeling of that, the nervous system, you know, that it sort of kicks in the autonomic piece, fight, flight, or freeze, or, you know, rest and, and relax. Goes on. On the other end of the spectrum, there's intuition. Ooh, we're getting to that. <laughs> intuition comes from the word intuito, intuitio, or I'm, I'm, I failed Latin. I didn't do well. Mr. Pizzullo, I'm so sorry for my Latin failures, but I-N-T-U-I-T-I-O or consideration, meaning it's an accumulated belief. Intuition is an understanding or knowledge of a situation without specific data or evidence at the time. Analytic reasoning is not part of the intuitive process. It is the ability to understand something immediately without the need for conscious reasoning. Your intuition is your subliminal processing of information that goes beyond rational thought. Being intuitive means that you're more often you that you more often know or sense. We're going to talk about senses too. Sense without conscious reasoning of what is right or true. For example, David had an intuition he was go he was going in the wrong direction. Intuition offers a reduction in overall cognitive load and the ability to respond instantly while providing confidence in your knowledge and the decision-making, even though it may defy analysis. In short, instincts are inherited while intuitions are acquired. And I'm just going to finish because there's not much left and I've already gone this far. <laughs> Sorry for all the reading. Instinct and intuition have a common goal. This I thought was interesting. 
As a user experience designer, the majority of my decisions each day are driven by user needs, business goals, and technology. But intuition and gut feeling, the hunch, both play a big role in decision-making. In fact, they say that great product design comes from a combination of three elements, data, empathy, and gut feeling. In conclusion, we now know that intuition and instincts don't share the same origin. Instinct has a biological foundation, while intuition is the result of our experience and the development of our consciousness. In essence, we need both instinct and to intuition to make decisions, anticipate risks, and live more connected, meaningful lives. Listen to your intuition and your instincts and make them work in your favor. This brings in a lot of what we wanted to talk about today. It does. It does. And I was reading in psychology today, practicing intuition. So they talked about practicing intuition, which I thought, you know, we talk about a lot of practices, but I never, I don't think I ever really put intuition into something that was a practiced, learned. We do draw oracle cards. We do. That is true. Every that day. is practice. And that's yeah. a practice of intuition because even though most of those cards, we can draw meaning from anything that we pick, they're archetypes. They're overarching things that, you know, are, are relevant to life. And sometimes they're so uncanny that you think, oh my God, how did that, I could have picked any card, but I picked the priestess today and I'm, you know, whatever. That's a practice. That is a practice. Oh, you just opened up my eyes a little <laughs> bit more. <laughs> I saw the signs, <laughs> opened up my eyes, I saw the signs. <laughs> yeah. Um, in this particular article, they said successful leaders often report and that intuition has helped them in their careers. That really um, this intuitive means of, of making decisions without using the anatomical mind, but using the felt sense, that gut feeling, when it comes down to the end of, okay, I have to make this decision that a lot of whoever successful people are in this article suggest that much of their, their advancement came from following their gut and their intuition. And then once they made the choice, then using the analytical mind to, to put it into play, to put it into the into process. And I found that to be really fascinating. And there's a study by, oh, I'm going to play with words too now. <laughs> Lustianto, Duncan, and Pearson at the University of South Wales in 2016 found that non-conscious emotional information can boost the accuracy of decision-making while also increasing an individual's sense of confidence. In addition, it's found to speed up the actual decision-making process. Now, and sometimes I find that I, I'm really good at pros and cons list and I should I do this or should I do that? You know, so much so that it's paralyzing to try and decide which is the right decision to make because those lists can sometimes be equal in benefits and uh, things that aren't really the, my outcomes that I want to accomplish. But in the end, I find that if I can just sit down and breathe, maybe even put my hand on my heart, because that works for me, maybe not others, and ask, what do you want to do? 
And that's a practice that you do often. You do ask. It's so interesting, you know, and the thing, once we make the decision and we do offer a lot of, excuse me, practices, which are, you know, these theories in action. And so the word action has always kind of been a buzzword for me because and I'm the youngest of four. I was, I think, for a long time, the underachiever of the family. And, you know, I, I much preferred inaction to action. And, you know, so, but now things are very different. My, my transformational process has brought me to a place where action is kind of, you know, the where, where all the juice is, you know, but to get out there and do it. But there's a process to get to the action piece. And once you decide, you affirm that, yes, this is the thing that my heart is telling me, my gut is moving me there. I've kind of worked around all of the rational, irrational, you know, modifications and rationalizations. And I'm, I've decided to do it. Now I actually have to fucking go out there and do it, you know, and that there's an ignition time that I've noticed over the years has gotten shorter and shorter as there's as a certain urgency of life has you know, the longer we live, the short, the, the fewer years we have ahead of us than we have behind us. And so there's a certain urgency. I think I may have said this when I worked at Wetlands, which was an environmental rock and roll nightclub in Manhattan back in the 90s. I was cashier and coat check. And when I would go down to the bathroom, my favorite stall, you'd walk in. It was the one on the left. It was the bigger stall. And someone one night, you just know that this woman was like pissed drunk and she had to pee so bad. And she gets into that stall and she wrote, and I'm assuming it was a she, it was the, the ladies room, wrote the urgency of now. And that has never, and I, you know, this was the early nineties. I didn't have, you know, like I didn't take a camera with me everywhere I went. And I'm so sorry I didn't get a picture of that, but that has kind of been my mantra, you know, over the years, the urgency of now. So that requires action and through action, through these think, thought processes that we go through, through these practices, how can we not experience transformation? And we talked a little bit about this last episode that, you know, words have power. And when we talked about observing things in this episode, our observations are fueled by our experiences, our, our emotions, who we are and where we are in this moment. So that's why I always felt like the witness program in court is flawed because five people could see the same thing and have five different you know, stories to tell in that one thing. And those observations came from their experience. And the same way words can can charge. And I know that you had an experience with transformation not being something, a word that you said, and I don't want to mis misquote you because I know I misheard you last time, but a sense that this was not a word you wanted to use. And for good reason. I mean, you had some valid reasons. And if we were to kind of unpack it and reframe it a little bit, we can't avoid transformation. Sometimes we wait for the diagnosis, the illness, the divorce, the move, the job loss, those big things that transform us in an instant, you know, or potentially, I should say. Some of us can, can live in the grief for a while, as we should, but that sometimes it takes those big moments and we're missing those, those owl moments. You know, we're still kind of focused on those hawk moments that the owl moments get lost, those little tiny things that over time transform. I don't think a year ago I would have heard what I heard in the last episode's conversation. I don't think I would have been willing necessarily to step up and, you know, say, hey, I'm an asshole. <laughs> you know, <laughs> to me, that's growth and that's transformation. It's small and it may only affect us here. But we get to take turns being assholes and that's really great. You know, <laughs> so <laughs> somebody once said, 
It's not bad to be an asshole. It's only bad if you're the asshole all the time. Because <laughs> all of us get to step into those shoes at some point in time or up there. <laughs> but oh, in so this funny. intuition, I kept finding, you know, when we were talking about practices, that there are, you know, the practice of mindfulness is one of the ways that I read to step into your intuition. And another thing that kept coming up while I was reading about this is where does the information come from? Like how, when we have this intuitive feeling, where is it coming from? And I found it interesting because the answer in different, different articles that I were, was reading was maybe it's a billboard that catches your eye. If, you're, if you if uh, you live in any place that's around the city and drive on a major highway in this country, there's a lot of billboard signs, maybe not on the interstates, but definitely on the local roads. So why does one billboard, when there's hundreds in your journey, capture your attention? What did it say that made you look at it? Or the other day when I was driving, I started to notice that all the license plates around me had eight, seven on them. And I was driving on a road that had eight, seven in it. So I just started to notice and all of a sudden it was eight, seven, eight, seven, eight, seven. What did it mean? I don't know. Maybe I should have stopped and got a lottery ticket, which I did not. Or, <laughs> you know, maybe it's a word that keeps coming up or a person that you keep seeing. There's just so many different ways of really becoming mindful of what we notice. And I love to say that, notice what you notice. Mm -hmm. Especially if, when I'm trying to make a decision, trying to make a choice, and I'm trying to tap into my intuition and my feelings, I do have a practice of paying attention to what I notice. And yeah, it can be random. Like you said, our cards can, we can put meaning into many different things once it's sitting in front of us. But if I'm really struggling with something, I will take out my iPhone. I will go to iTunes. I'll find my song library. I hit, I say what I want, what I'm thinking about yeah, out loud. I'll say, you know, I'm really looking for an answer too. And then I'll verbalize it. And then I hit random play. And it's only the first three songs. I will listen to three songs and then I'm done. And whatever I pull out of those three songs, that is a meaning that I'm supposed to contemplate. I love that. I, I've heard you say that before, and I've tried that myself. But the problem is my playlist is so filled with Broadway show tunes <laughs> that, you know, I every time I do it, I feel like I, I had a roommate in college who got me a postcard. It was these two women in the 1950s in the kitchen, you know, in the garb, and they have the little thought bubbles over their heads. And one is looking really, really bored and annoyed. And the other one says, I feel a song coming on. And it says underneath her life was a Broadway musical. And so it feels like it sort of taps into my I can leave this reality for a while. But, you know, when you were talking about that, I, I found this article about the 17 signs your intuition is on point. And, you know, one of the things it says, and the clock is always set to 1111. Like every time you look, it's 1111. I'm not going to read the descriptions, but this is from a look at the phenomenon of gut feelings by Brittany Bennett and Carolyn Stieber. They say, number one, you're somehow always right. <laughs> number two, you have vivid dreams. Number three, you have nagging thoughts, things that just keep coming up. You often stare into space. You pick up on everyone's energy. You seem to know things before they happen. 
you experience synchronicities and those synchronicities require awareness and attention. Like, what are you seeing? Kind of like dreams. They say, if you write your dreams down, you'll remember them more and more vividly. And I think that's also true when you start noticing synchronicities, you notice them more. The clock is always at 11.11. Your body is relaxed. You feel purposeful. Number 11 is you find the good in people. Number 12 is answers feel like light bulbs. 13, you're always at the right place at the right time. You are in tune with your body. You think of someone and they text you. 16, did I miss any 11, uh, oh, 12, about answers. No, I get that. You have, uh, you think of someone and they text you. You have reservations when no one else does, not at a restaurant, but about an experience, <laughs> about doing something. And you've always been safe. I don't know how I feel about the word always, you know, and everyone and all these all-inclusive things, because I think, like you said, we can practice intuition. And so that means there's an evolutionary path. There's a growth, a journey to you know, fulfilling a bigger intuitive space container, as it were. Can, you know, <laughs> here we are. You know, when you said this just popped into my head completely unplanned, so it must need to be in this particular episode. When you said when you have a reservation about something and no one else does, anytime that subject comes up, the same story always pops into my head. When my children were younger, and I'm going to say they were... 10 and 12-ish. We like the ish because I never really... We're all really... about the ish. <laughs> We're all about the ish. In time, it's the ish. And, you know, it's all the ish. And gish. But... And gish. Yes, yep. we did both. We're gishers. But when they were young, we were at Great Adventure. That was before it was called Six Flags. That's how long ago it was. And I was there with my sisters and uh, my other nieces and nephews. And we came to the haunted house. I don't like haunted houses. I don't like them at all. Not because they're scary, but just it just feels weird going in them. I'm never happy to mm -hmm. go into a haunted house. And my sons really, really wanted to go in. And my stomach was churning, churning, and churning. And I was like, you can't go in. And my sisters, sorry, sisters. And, love you, uh, sisters. <laughs> yeah, I love you. And the kids were all like, come on, you're being ridiculous. And I was like, I don't feel right. I, I, you can't go in. And my kids were really upset with me. They're like, all the other kids get to go in the haunted house and we can't go in the haunted house. So I was like, I'll buy you ice cream. We can go find another ride, whatever it is. But I'm sorry, I'm not letting you in the haunted house. It just doesn't feel right to me. And I'm just not going to do it. And so I took the heat. I, I, I did the parent thing, whether it was right or wrong from everybody else's perspective. But the next day, the haunted house burned down. A great adventure. And what happened wow. was people did not know how to get out because they're dark in there. And when the fire started, everybody was lost in, in there. And I can't remember the exact results of it, but I know that there were fatalities in that accident. And so it's a really sad story to talk about honoring that, that reservation about feeling. And my body was feeling something that was really scary and to stop and notice it. And it was hard for me to st stick to my conviction and just be like, no, you're not going. But my body was almost shaking every time I thought about them going in. So maybe I do have ESP, who knows? But it was a really sad story. Yeah, that is sad. It was really sad. But, you know, if our bodies are reactive, 
is it instinct? Like I couldn't really see the future, so I can't say it's an instinct, but I don't know what it was, but somebody was, somebody was watching out for us. Maybe a balance between the biological and the acquired wisdom. You know, when you were talking, it made me think we've also talked about the senses being the way that we experience the world. So why wouldn't the senses be the way we interpret the world and, and experience that, that reaction kind of thing? And it goes back to the koshas. Everything fucking goes back to the koshas. You know, I mean, every layer is impacted by being alive and having these experiences. You know, Liz, who runs the Prancing Peacock, where we met and where we taught and beautiful local yoga studio, she used to talk, and I may have said this in season one, but I loved this. She used to talk about the great remembering. And the word remember, I love because, you know, we think usually about thought. I remember something from my past. I'm remembering, I have a memory of something. But it's also, if you break it down, remember, taking disparate things and bringing them together to create this picture of something whole or, you know, to remember ourselves, to bring these disparate parts of ourselves together. And the great remembering just kind of feels into this whole thing that when a sense comes up, when we feel it either, when, if we have a thought or if our physical body has a, an experience or if somehow the acquired wisdom is our, is that the intuition or our instinct? <laughs> I think it's our intuition. <laughs> intuition. I think the instinct is the biological. Yes. So the acquired wisdom we can put into that kosha of in, the instinct we can put into that kosha. So. You know, however we experience our own intuitive nature, and I think, again, I do believe we all have that, whether or not we listen, pay attention, understand it, are able to manage it is another story. But sometimes it might just be, I don't think that's right. And that's, that's the Manamaya Kosha. I don't feel that's right, Anamaya Kosha. You know, I don't, you know, my instinct, tell, my instinct tells me that would also be Anamaya Kosha, but my intuition, intuition tells me that would be Vignanamaya Kosha. So like we've got all of these and then they all kind of filter down into the, the final one where we just have that bliss when I think we are in alignment with our Koshas, when we're in alignment with our senses, with our, when our when our body tells us something and we listen to it, you know, rather than, you know, default to, yeah, you know, I can't be right. That that's another thing too. You know, we talked earlier about peripheral vision, peripheral awareness. So it makes sense that with each and every sense that we have, that there's a peripheral view of scent or taste or touch that when we have enough awareness and we spend time paying attention to our senses, where we tap into them and, you know, rediscover, like go out into a walk in the, I don't know, on the towpath in Bucks County, there's one place that has a lot of pine trees. And every time I walk there, my nose is filled with the scent of pine. But yet I can go outside anywhere else, even if there's trees, and not really be aware of what I'm smelling. Yeah. In the same way that I could have ego eyes, maybe I could have expanded hearing. The other thing we did was deer ears, where you cup your ears so that you're, you're, the whole of your ear is forward, and then move your head with the back of your ears cupped and notice if you can you direct your hearing to a specific place to hear what's coming from that direction 
more clearly. As I've gotten older, I've cut my ears quite a bit. <laughs> and yes, it does bring the sound in. I'll be like, what? what? <laughs> I love this joke. My dad, I, I used to tell it to my dad because my mom, my, I think I may have even said this. We're getting to the point where we begin to repeat ourselves. But my dad, as soon as he needed hearing aids, he got hearing aids. My mother never did that. And I love this joke. This guy goes to the doctor and he says, hey, doc, I'm worried about my wife. I'm worried about her hearing. And he suggests that he try to talk to her from different distances away and see when sort of like when the peripheral hearing comes in. And so he comes home and he goes home and he says at the door, hey, honey, you know, what's for dinner? She's in the kitchen. Nothing. He walks into the living room. Hey, honey, what's for dinner? He's not cupping his ears, but he's cupping around his mouth. Nothing. He gets to the sort of doorway between the dining room and the kitchen. He says, honey, what's for dinner? Nothing. Gets right up to her face, says, honey, what's for dinner? She looks at him exasperated and says, for the fourth time, chicken. <laughs> you know, who's, the, who's hearing isn't working so well? Who are you worried about? <laughs> oh, that is funny. You know? so that becomes, you know, sort of the running punchline. You know, we don't even have to tell the joke anymore. If someone doesn't, for the fourth time, chicken, you know. <sighs> yes. A little levity. So, you know, instinct, intuition. The senses are a really, really important part of our communication style. Yeah. Even when we're not paying attention to it. Did you ever go outside and, you know, or, or be inside and you notice that you can taste? Like sometimes I'll be outside after a rainy day and I was like, ooh, it tastes earthy out here. It, because is it scent? Is it taste? But intuition, I believe, and instinct, sometimes for me, I feel like they're hard to separate. And I think it all has to do with a mindful awareness of tapping into self, tapping into our own, um, our own senses and paying attention. Like this mindfulness uh, is a way of sharpening and meditation is a way of sharpening our connection to thoughts and sensation and feelings, wherever we put them. Hey, did you ever read Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Big Magic? I do not think I did. I, you know, it's funny. I have this thing with her. I love her so much. Everything I've read, I have fucking loved. But, you know, I eat, pray, love, I totally dug. And then she goes into, you know, she writes fiction and memoir and spiritual books and inspiration and all these things. I'm like, who do you think you are writing all these different books? But she's so fucking good at all of it that I've let that go. That was, again, another stupid thing that came up. Like, what is that? But Big Magic. Oh, my gosh. I think every creative person on the planet should read this book. Um, I read it when it came out, so it's not really in the surface of my brain. But the one thing that stuck with me that stayed in the sieve that became sort of embodied, and it may go a little bit to Mill Robbins' five-second rule that she does. Because one of the things Elizabeth says is she says, you know, creativity, and I'm going to use, I'm bringing creativity in on the heels of inspiration, intuition, all of these things that kind of are energies that feed the same well, that sort of feed into the same well. She says creativity's mission is to live, is to be to be expressed in the world. And so when we get the tap, and that tap on the shoulder, the tap on the heart, the tap on the gut, that intuitive tap for creativity, that if we, we have a certain window of time, she suggests, that 
we can get this creativity channeled, manifested through us. And then if we don't do it, it's going to move on to some other channel that's going to let it be born. So, you know, if I, I used to take this guy and he used to say, yeah, I had that idea first, or I thought of that first. And I thought you may have, but you didn't manifest it first. You know, it needed to be born. And so I was like, you know what? You've had enough time to get it done, written, created, you know, that I'm moving on to someone else so that I can live out my mission, which is creativity's goal. And so the five second rule that Mel Robbins does, like, you know, do it, just, you know, think about it, whatever. So this whole thing of, you know, intuition and inspiration feel like the, the clay for creativity. And I found this really great article. This is the last article I'm going to cite, I promise, called, it's from a place called Kindred Spirit, which I will lovingly called Kind Red Spirit. Intuition and Inspiration, Kindred Spirit Magazine. I don't want to read the whole thing, but I will put it in the show notes. So if it's interesting to you, listeners, you can access it yourself. But it starts with a quote by Albert Einstein. There comes a point where the mind takes a leap, call it intuition or what you will, and comes out upon a higher plane of knowledge, but can never prove how it got there. All great discoveries have involved such a leap. So even, you know, the great Albert Einstein gives some credence to the woo, gives credence to the intuition or call it what you will. You know, when we can't, there's so much unknowable when it comes to intuition, when it comes to, you know, this, this whole process. So how do we rest in what we can't possibly know? And so we call it woo and we minimize it and we say, oh, that can't possibly live in the same space as science, your real science, not this other quantum physics or neuro, you know, whatever that is that people are, you know, having conversations about. <laughs> this is there I go riffing again. But so. There's this whole, this great article, and he talks about through intuition, any one content is, this is such small print, I'm not even going to read it. It's by a guy named Jim Blackman, but he says also, just as we can become more logical, we can practice logic, can also become more intuitive. Just as logic has its own methods, intuition has its own methods. So if we want to become more creative, if we want to be more creative, we need to understand it, attend to it, and then apply it. And he says, and I'll... I, I lied. I'm going to say a few more things about this. He says, there are three elements to intuition. And the reason I'm going into this, because these are tangible things. These are, you know, beyond our thoughts, beyond our feelings. This is, says the first is gut feeling. It's not beyond any of it. It's actually the thing itself. We meet a stranger and we have a gut feeling about them. We hear someone make a proposal and think this feels right. Or conversely, I'm not so sure about this. Our gut feeling speaks to us whenever there is something we cannot see or cannot define, and yet we know it is there. So we resort to gut feeling because in life we have to deal with the unknown to make our most important decisions. The second element of intuition is about seeing the world as it is. And this brings in the practices that we've talked about, observances, you know, being present practicing mindfulness so that we can see things as they are. This is called, and I love this, quote unquote, isness in the East. And it means to see the essential nature of a thing. Too often we impose our own judgment on what we see. And when we do, everything we see is colored by our judgment. And this is this is not a judgment on judgment. This is human nature. This is what we do. This is how we organize the world. This is me. This is not the article. Coming back to the article. So when we see the world intuitively, we see the world with fresh eyes. And this goes back to the importance of retreat, of being able to get out of patterns and our own ritualized shit so that we can have fresh thinking and fresh thoughts. 
coming back to the article, it says, mm-hmm. when this happens, we might see an everyday object, a flower, a person, an event, and suddenly think, I, re- I never really noticed that before. The third and final thing that I'll cite from here, and then you can access it from, from the, the link, the third element of intuition is insight. Insight is when a new idea suddenly occurs to us, instantly and out of the blue. While it might seem that this third element is what really leads to inspiration, in fact, all three elements are needed. We are first alerted to something hidden by gut feeling, which goes back to the blind spots. It's hidden by our gut feeling, this alert. And if we pay attention to this, we might find ourselves attending to something we had missed. Many inventions come about this way. Blind spot. I'll just really quickly follow that up with a poem that, because I didn't, I didn't want to get too far away from the blind spot thing, because blind spots also include our thoughts. They also include, I don't know if you guys ever invoke St. Anthony, the patron saint of lost things, but I mean, I'm Jewish, but he's my best friend. And I mean, I have lots of interaction with St. Anthony. I will start with St. Anthony, patron saint of lost things. I can't need your help again. It's your old friend, Sherry, please help me. And I have a very clear memory of being at the sink. I was doing dishes and I had what was probably the most profound, amazing, brilliant thought I have ever had in my life. And I'm going to stand by that. It was the most amazing thing. And I thought to myself, self, okay, I can't believe I just said that. But I thought to myself, you're going to remember this because this is the thing that's going to catapult you from where you are to where you imagine yourself to be five years from now. Don't forget. And as soon as I said to myself, don't forget, what do you think happened? You forgot. Totally fucking forgot. So (sighs) this is this poem that I wrote, which is in my third book, Wild and Free, the Poetry of Living, Loving and Letting Go, is called Lost in Thought. And it's short, but I'm going to read it to you. St. Anthony, patron saint of lost things, it's your constant companion calling. You have lit dark corners, cleared cobwebs and dust bunnies, directed me to see what has been concealed. And now I call upon you once again to lead me to what I lost. It's not a watch or a cell phone, notebook or car keys. This time the reveal lies somewhere in the maze of my mind. You see, I have misplaced a thought. A thought I clearly remember having while washing pots and pans. A thought that promised to remain until the soap was rinsed. A thought that would have replaced the words I'm writing now. If this thought, this mislaid moment should spark your talents for tracking, you know where to find me. (laughs) 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 I see you dancing over there. And just instinctively, we both wore black long sleeve sweatery things today, which is something neither one of us have ever done before, individually or collectively. And we did not plan it. We did not plan it. We did not plan it at all. You know, when you were sharing all of that really great information with us about intuition and forgetting, <laughs> apparently I forgot when you stopped talking what I wanted to talk about. So brilliant as it gimme, was, gimme. As brilliant <laughs> as it was, I'm sure it was there. But I was talking about uh, what I was thinking about was kind of the amalgamation of intuition instinct and how it fits in with practices of self-care. Because self-care is kind of expansive. And when I was reading about intuition in so many different places, they talked about how we have to tap in and that there are practices that are both for the body, mind, and spirit. That 
we really want to, there are four types of intuition. It's physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual, which sounds an awful lot like some of the practices that we talk about. And as I started looking at these things coming together, I was reminded that when I became a massage therapist, a couple of things really stood out about self-care and mindset around self-care. And what it was, was people would say things like, I got my project done, so I rewarded myself with a massage. Or, it's my mother's birthday, so thank you, Siva. So I want to treat her to a massage. Or, oof, you know, I really, really, really allow myself to take care of myself once a month with a massage. There was all of these statements that sounded like we had to earn self-care. And it became such a focus of something I had never really paid attention to before. And, you know, I've noticed over the years that self-quick care is kind of like a buzzword, that we hear it all the time, that it kind of feeds into oh yeah, there's that thing about self-care. I have to go out and run and exercise. And, you know, these lists of things that kind of fit into what is self-care. So I want to maybe break that myth a little bit about self-care. So maybe self-care is, I love to crochet at night and it's one of my favorite hobbies. Or I love puzzles. I have always, I had a, um, one of my friend's aunts who lived with her. She always had a puzzle. We talked about that before, and I know that you love puzzle pieces. Maybe it's tinkering with things that don't work as a hobby or painting or making jewelry or loving beading, right? So to give attention to our hobbies as part of self-care and even physically, you know, Washing our face at night or putting on fresh clothes is a way of having self-care. Maybe eating a nutritious, balanced meal is something that fits well into self-care, as well as the regular exercise that we're talking about. For me, I wear sunscreen because my skin is sensitive. I consider that to be part of my self-care. You have... A beautiful sadhana that you share with us often with the different things and how you switch it up, right? Maybe a little bit more formal, but maybe that's a spiritual and physical self-care that kind of blends itself together. So I think that there's a personal self-care, but I like to think that when we are really good at noticing that much of what we do is self-care directed then we start to switch our mindset that we don't have to earn self-care. We just are something that we do. Seeking peace and finding joy is not something that needs to be earned. So self-care is not something that you have to create time for and that you're only allowed to have it if you have lots of time in your schedule. It's not a reward. It's not an indulgence. It's not selfish. And it's not a waste of time. Yes, I think that is such an incredibly important point. But, you know, the way that we've talked about the word stress as being both positive and negative, it is selfish, but we should be allowed to be selfish. 
Mm. It is self-directed. And when you were talking an equation, and I'm not a math person. If you knew me, you would think, oh, my God, I can't believe she was inspired to come up with an equation on this. But it seemed to me that mindfulness plus taking the time to do the things that we love equals self-care. And not just the things that we love, but the things that are also good for us. I had written something the other day that's saying that self-care isn't a luxury, but it can feel luxurious. Uh, that we get to feel the luxury too. And something that just really pisses me off when people judge other people on their choices of self-care, you have done it. I'm not talking to you directly to, to generally like the Facebook world and the social media world where if someone is selling something, your bubble bath can't possibly be, that's not real self-care. Fuck you. You know what? It may not be the depth of what we're talking about here, but the element of water is healing. And if after a long day you choose to get into a bubble bath, that is your self-care. And someone minimizing anyone else's choices of what they do for their self-care is just, I, I think it's obnoxious and it's its inappropriate. We're <laughs> misappropriate over here. <laughs> but, you know, we can maybe find a different word. But I think when we, I think the bigger message of that is when we think that only doing the superficial things, only doing the reward things is the self-care, then we have potential to deepen our definitions around what self-care means. And we can probably include a lot more, we're probably already doing some things that if we can frame them as self-care, like you said, putting on sunscreen is a self-care act. It's an act of self-love that when you, you take someone's hand, you know, if you're giving someone a hug, there's so many different ways we can, we can frame this conversation. But I think that you're absolutely right. It's, these are things we get to do every day and it's not, it's not a reward system. But you know what? Some of us grew up on the reward system. You do well, you get to do this. Maybe it's a place to start. It may not be the end place. Maybe like I get to eat my peanut M&Ms when I did well on the test. Okay, so now I have an addiction to peanut M&Ms, but whatever. As a vegan, I no longer get to eat them, <laughs> which is a good thing. But, but that's a self-care thing for me too. You know, choosing the food that I eat in alignment with, you know, I love a good fucking cheeseburger. Slap some, you know, blue cheese on it. I, I love the taste of it. I just don't do it because it's not in alignment with where I am right now. It doesn't feel right for me. I don't judge others who eat meat because that's in alignment with where they are. And if, you know, there's a whole conversation to be had about that too. But I think that, you know, as someone who is slowly climbing down off the high horse over years, it becomes untenable for me to see people, you know, reaching higher, going on higher horses. Yeah. If that makes sense. Is that a high horse thing to say? That may have been a high horse thing to say. <laughs> Um, yeah, I just seem to think that if we prioritize our self-care, which doesn't mean prioritize going out and getting a massage or whatever it is, but prioritize that we're in, we are worthy of and important enough to be taking care of self in many different ways. And for each one of us, it's going to show up differently. It's going to show up because some people like to go to yoga so they and they would prefer to go to a studio than practice at home right they're still practicing yoga they're still doing the same thing but they're doing it in different ways yeah you know self-care doesn't have to be a financial investment it doesn't have to be a major time investment and maybe if we if i sit back and observe myself for a day or two or three 
with the intention of noticing what taking care of myself when I'm listening to what my body needs and offering it. Like some nights I'm tired and I just want to sit up and continue binge watching, even though I'm tired. So I fall asleep on the couch and I don't get to watch it anyway. <laughs> Instead of just saying, you know what, tonight I'm tired. I'm just going to go to bed at 730. <laughs> right. Ever, ever have done. <laughs> some days it was probably be a good choice for me to make. But so many of the things that we do can fall into self-care. And maybe when we are mindful of our self-care, does that enhance our ability to be intuitive, tap into noticing what our personal needs are? And the more skilled we become at noticing our own personal needs and caring to them, does that move into relationships outside of self and being intuitive to other people's needs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just apropos of the, the sadhana thing, I had to do a shift in, and this was a self-care shift. I had moved from doing alternate nostril breathing into Kabbalah Bhati, which is sort of a fire, <laughs> very, it's, it's fierce. It's called the, uh, uh, my God. Breath of fire. Breath of fire. Thank you. Breath of fire. And I can't do that though. I, I, I realize I have high blood pressure now. I never had high blood pressure. It was something postmenopausal that came on. It may be part of, you know, my DNA and not sure, but I'm on meds. And, you know, when I first started out in yoga, I, we would learn the things you, that are counter, you know, intuitive to doing when you have high blood pressure, or if you have this or that. And, you know, I admit to not paying a whole lot of attention. I paid some attention. And when someone came to me and told me they had a condition, I made it my job to make sure that I was keeping them safe in the room. But I didn't teach to every condition there was. But when I got this condition, I had to kind of look and see. And I started doing the Kabbalah Bhati, and I had this instinct that I probably should be doing this. And then maybe instinct, intuition, I don't know. And then I realized that either I can do it really slow or I can change my pranayama. And I changed it to equal inhales and equal inhales and exhales. I know that sometimes mm -hmm. they say you can activate your parasympathetic nervous system by extending your exhale longer than your inhale. Um, but I decided to do the, the even up and down. And they said six breaths per minute is sort of the basic guideline. And I, did a, I do it for five minutes and I get basically about 21 breaths in. So I'm breathing really slowly and deeply and I've got a nice long count each way. And that is, they say, if you do this a little bit every day, it has a direct effect on your blood pressure. Now, again, I'm not a doctor or a scientist or anything like that, but I will say that when I do that practice, I don't feel tightness in my chest. I feel a certain liberty in my blood flow. And so that experience has, has guided my intuition to even just my daily breathing. Yeah, it's, it's so very intuitive. Again, tapping into how you felt and linking it. This is one of the other things that I read about when I was reading about intuition is that we get to link it to, sometimes intuition comes because we link it to past patterns or we link it to past learning, things that we read, things that we knew, things that we understood. And then we start to feel it in our body and we link all of that information and our intuition is like, oh, maybe I want to change this. So, right, intuition is so hard to, for us to wrap our heads around a good, solid, I am intuitive definition because it's a, comes from a combination of places. And you said, 
I was thinking about my Kalabate breath and back in yoga where it was where we studied that it was contraindicated. And then you link that to, oh, and this blood, high blood pressure came after postmenopausal. And oh, here's another breath practice that I know that may be more supportive to where I am today. Yeah. So there was a lot of things that went into changing something that felt intuitive at the time. I'm going to pull a Teresa. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. That, yes. The hair, ha hammer, nail, head, smash. Mm. Yeah. We got it. Uh, and I'd rather be the hammer than the nail today. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we, we, this has been a really long conversation. And in terms of, uh, you know, practicing, growing our intuition, if that's a thing, I think I have heard that, and I just mentioned it in this episode too, that when you write down your dreams, they say you remember your dreams more. And this author from Kindred Spirit, Jim Blackman, he offers a practice and I'm going to offer his practice because he says, this is a useful tip. And this I'm quoting from the article. He says, keep a notepad and jot down new ideas as they arrive. They can be lost or forgotten 10 minutes after they arrive. I'm going to liken back to the poem I read, Lost <laughs> in Thought. Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones said the idea for the song Satisfaction came to him in a dream. Luckily, he had a tape recorder nearby and hit the record button. He captured the first verse plus 40 minutes of him snoring. New ideas can come at any time. <laughs> That's a great little anecdote for anecdotal anatomy here. Oh, man. <laughs> yes. And for practices, these are repeat practices, but they were also written in psychology today in practicing intuition for self-care. Some of that, those suggestions are regular meditation and a mindfulness practice to maintain journaling, just like you said. To practice creative visualization and sit down and give ourselves time to tap into our curiosity, you know, like when we were a child, our imagination are great practices to enhance our intuition. So Yay. I do want to say, though, since we are talking about self-care, that Cherry and I made a pretty amazing decision about our retreat. So our retreat is coming up. This is airing. Maybe it's in two or three days. Is that right? After it's, yes. This should be airing on Tuesday, on Thursday and on Saturday, the 5th of November is our first day of retreat. And don't think you won't have time to come because it's outside. So we'll have plenty of space. If this is a last minute choice, we are happy to be your hosts. And if you want to look at a more formal guide for self-care and practices, Rhythm and Rhyme Retreat will have many layers of practice and self-care. We have two, two dates, two full days on sun Saturdays. Sorry, I'm really getting confused mm -hmm. here. And something I'm super excited about, in addition to that, is our Tuesday night full moon ceremony. Because somewhere in my head and in my dreams... I have this vision of a bunch of women dancing around the fire in Yay. white gowns. But we have some really, really amazing um, practices for that as well. And like we said earlier, if you're listening to this and it's two days before the retreat and you heard about it on the podcast, you can email us and we will send you the code for the, for the early bird, even though it will have been done by, you know, weeks before. 
So if you heard it here, let us know. You will get the discount. But come, we don't want financial challenges, time challenges, any of that to be the impediment to showing up. So we've also created an a la carte system where if you can only come one weekend and or the fire cere- the full moon fire ceremony, then you get to choose that. You can choose them a la carte. The only thing with a la carte is that you won't get the discount. But other than that, please come, show up, come as you are. And you can find all that information on anecdotalanatomy.com. And if you look in the menu, Rhythm and Rhyme is right at the top of the page with all of the details. And a little teaser that I'm going to drop here is I spoke with Sherry and she also thought it would be a good idea for me to host a mindful outdoor experience with the Kripalo method that I learned while I was away at my training and caring for myself in the forest. So can't wait to see you. Until next time. Until next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening, for rating, reviewing, and subscribing to our channels and all our other stuff. Thank you for inspiring us to have these conversations and to create contemplative live experiences that move our bodies, hearts, and minds to the rhythm of our highest selves. Thank you for showing up. Feel free to send us your stories, questions, and comments to anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. As always, we thank our amazing editor, Judith George, Keith Kenny for our fun music, and Cindy Fatsis for our photos. Journey with us as we continue down the roads of discovery, taking the detours and meeting the mysteries. You are our why. See you next time.